Open your Bibles, if you would, Ephesians chapter 6. Last week, as we wrapped up Ephesians 5, uh, the focus was on relationship between husband and wife. And we saw that the uh, Apostle Paul's instructions for that relationship uh, call for a relationship characterized by cooperation and love. Love expressed in cooperative action. And that the things that we read in these chapters, like the ending of chapter 5, are really not intended to be like put on a sign and put up on the mantle like, you know, do this kind of a thing. As much as they are an expression of, of two other things. We noted this over the last several, several weeks. Um, that Paul is talking about the relationships within the family, uh, again, not as a standalone kind of an idea, but as an expression of what we saw back in verse 15, where he said, walk not as unwise, but as wise. It's a matter of wisdom. And that in and of itself, if you recall from last week, is pretty significant because it moves that whole discussion. We're talking about family relationships even in the, in the, in the passage this morning. It moves that whole discussion because he says walk as, as, with wisdom, not as the unwise but as wise, into that same kind of you know, category, if you will, as the book of Proverbs. You know, and I mean, I'll be the first to admit that Proverbs is a book that I kind of sometimes don't know exactly what to do with because I come from a pretty typical Western mindset. Like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Keep it black and white and I'm okay. I'm much more comfortable that way. And the book of Proverbs doesn't work that way. It's just like wisdom. Like, this is the smart thing to do. If you want to be dumb, that's, you know, your prerogative, right? So it moves that whole discussion uh, into, into the realm of wisdom. And then in verse 18, and if you remember when we looked at that last section of chapter 5, how it all is dependent upon what went before it, right? That whole, whole question of the, the whole word of ipotasso, submission, all that means, how grammatically that in verse 22 is dependent on verse 21. 22 makes no sense at all without verse 21. And then verse 21 is wholly dependent on verse 18, where it says, be filled with the Spirit. I mean, those sentences, they just don't make, you can't make grammatic sense out of it unless you connect it back to verse 18. And what that tells us is this all is under that umbrella of walking in wisdom and being filled with the Spirit. And that's going to continue through this first part of the sixth verse. So without, without any more delay, I think you'll, you'll know what I mean when we get into it. Let's go ahead and read the first nine verses of chapter 6. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, not as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them. And give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we come to a portion of your word this morning that, again, much like last week, Father, I believe has been misunderstood. And for many people, it's been a real problem. And Father, we pray that as we look to it this morning, we will both remain completely faithful to what you say in your word, and at the same time, Father, express uh, what needs to be said to the hearts and minds of those who are even troubled by this passage. 
Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so it looks like, if you look at your Bibles, in all likelihood, it looks like that Paul is just like jumping from one issue, the issue of husbands and wives, and now he's jumping over to the issue of children and parents, and then he's jumping over to the issue of slaves and their masters. Now, before we just get into the details of what he says, I want to begin with a couple observations about that whole flow in the text, and then we'll look at what he says at those two, those two relation, sets of relationships. Children and parents, slaves and masters. First of all, a couple of um, observations. Again, it looks on its surface like just another set of rules, right? He said, husbands and wives, these are your rules. Uh, kids and parents, these are your rules, right? And that's what it looks like, right? And it, I think that kind of comes a lot out of our perspective as much as out of the text. Because I think we do have a, um, what I would describe as a checklist culture. I mean, I think most of us do that. You know, we start out the day with a list of things we have to do and check that off and check that off. And we feel comfortable as we progress down the checklist. That's the mentality that we bring. And so what we read in Paul's writing strikes us that way. So we've got our husband and wife, check that. And kids and parents, check that. Slave masters, check that. And we're, we're doing good. We're comfortable with that. And the problem with that is we don't tend to see this thing as a whole. We, don't, we can miss what Paul is saying as a whole, and that's of course enhanced by the fact that there's this great big paragraph break or chapter break right in the middle, right between five and six. So most of our Bibles there's this big white space, and you go, okay, well, new subject now. Well, as we noted last week, all of that, the, the separation of the verses, the separation of the paragraphs, the separation of the chapter, that's not in the original text. That's the people that translate it and edit, they arrange it in a way that makes it easier for us to work with. But that's not how the original manuscript was. It was just, you know, lines, and then it's up to us to figure out where, where the breaks are. And I think that contributes to this idea that there's this huge break between how he ended five and how he started six, and they're really talking about the same thing. We're talking about lives within the household, living together as families in the kingdom of God in a manner that expresses the kingdom of God first and foremost in our families, right? And I would also notice that, again, just my own reaction to it, the first time I'm reading it, the list looks kind of odd because we've got like husbands and wives, that's cool, uh, kids and parents, that's cool, and then slaves and masters. And I go, huh, really? You want to like put a discussion of husbands and wives in the same list as slaves and masters? I don't know about you, but that just doesn't like sit with me. So I have to look more closely at it and then find out you know, where I'm wrong because that's how it always works. If we read something in the text that doesn't sit with us, you can bet you're the one wrong. Okay, That's how it always works. So i got to look at this a little bit more. And what I realize is it comes down to, and I'm just sharing you the process I go through when I read this, when I study these things, um, that it has a lot to do with our whole attitude, toward, our whole perspective, rather, on family. What constitutes family? What constitutes the household? You know, our household, most of us, we got mom and dad, kids. Pretty basic, right? We may have an older parent that's kind of like attached, and that becomes kind of an interesting dynamic for most of us in our homes if we have an older parent present. Or that's redundant, all of our parents are older than us. Um, yeah, that's how it works. Um, so but that's kind of a weird dynamic sometimes. That is drastically different than the idea of household in the first century, or actually for most of antiquity. So we need to kind of back up a little bit and, um, 
and note how households work before this starts to make sense of it. We have to set aside some of our 20th or 21st century perspective in order to get this. It, it, it kind of reinforces something. It's a similar issue. Way back in those first couple of chapters, um, if you remember, we talked about our status, how everything in the Ephesian letter is an expression of this new status we have in Christ, our status as adopted children. God has adopted us as his kids, as uh, citizens of his kingdom. He's made us citizens of his kingdom. And then the third one was members of his household. Now, as I'm first processing that, it sounds to me like the first one and the third are kind of redundant. Like, adopted his kids, citizens of his kingdom, and then members of his household. Because of my 21st century perspective on what a household is. Yeah, mom and dad and the kids, right? So... Adopted as kids, members, same thing. Again, that shows how we're kind of out of kilter with the cultural setting in which this is written. Because in the first century, that idea of household was quite a bit different. It was much larger, right? In the Roman Empire of the first century, and not just among Romans, but in general throughout the empire, you have the paterfamilia, He's, that's the oldest male. Not necessarily dad, but usually. The oldest male living in the house, he's the boss, and then everybody else is arranged under that. Now, again, Scripture's not embracing that, but it's set in that culture. So that's the culture it's dealing with. And with that large body of people who fall under the paterfamilia, the oldest male, of course, would be his wife, daughters, sons, extended family, younger family units of husbands and wives and kids, but also all the servants in the house. See, the first century household all of the servants, both slaves and hired servants, came under the umbrella of both the authority and the provision and the protection of that paterfamilia, the guy in charge. So when Scripture speaks to the household, that's the unit it's speaking to. It included the hired help and the slaves. And in many cases, the slaves actually were better off than the hired help because the hired help can lose their job tomorrow. But the slaves were actually brought in in a very, we might say, domestic relationship. There's a really good example of that. When the centurion approached Jesus, remember the Gospels, and he said, uh, he said, you know, Rabbi, my child is sick. There's a lot of debate whether that was a child or a servant or a slave. Because the word that was used in that particular verse embraced all of them. Now we think, well, that stinks. You just lowered your child to the level of a slave. Well, actually, no. It elevates the, the servant or the slave to the level of the child. Again, it's a totally different perspective on family. And all I'm saying is if we're going to understand what Paul is saying here, we have to broaden our understanding of what the household was. It was a whole lot bigger concept, okay? So taking all that into consideration, let's look at this whole issue, first of all, of children with their parents. First one, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Again, we touched on this word obey a lot a couple of weeks ago. It doesn't exactly correspond to our idea, obey. It includes that. And when I think of obey, I think of like what you do when you're driving down the street and the light goes from green to red. You stop. It's not a complicated process. Right? If you don't stop, bad things happen. Right? So you just stop. Don't think about it. Don't even have to under. You don't stop. Well, we do sometimes. Stop to think about like what traffic engineer injured this thing, engineered this thing. It's a disaster. It shouldn't be going. We just stop. That's the only way to make it work. 
That's my idea of obey. Well, this certainly covers that, but it's also broader. The word that is used, and there really is no word in Greek that will do that, just like obey because you obey because you do, right? No, it's broader. The word means really nothing more than listen really carefully. So whenever you see the word obey in the New Testament, that's the word. It means to listen really, really carefully. Um, And I think the best way to appreciate that um, I think all of us as parents have had that experience, especially if our kids are, you know, got a few years on them, where you've told your kid exactly what to do, and they did exactly what you told them, and it really wasn't what you wanted them to do, you know. Either they take advantage, not that my kids would ever do this, but they take advantage of that certain vagary in what you said, Or maybe you weren't really clear when you said what you intended and they exploit that. Or maybe they make an honest mistake. But I think as parents, most of us have had that experience where you say to your kid, what did you do that? Well, you told me to. They obeyed, right? That's our American understanding of obey. To the letter, they did what you said. And that's not what I wanted you to do. If you thought about what I was saying, if you had listened, you'd have caught what I wanted, right? You would have caught the intent of my heart, and then hopefully you would have done it. It means more than just doing as told. It means processing what is being said. So what Paul is saying here is children, listen to your parents. Hear what your parents are saying. And again, that's why I say this is a lot like the book of Proverbs. Where Saul, we, we, we know the Proverbs, or we read the Proverbs, and we memorize all the instructions. But do we ever pay a lot of attention to how, Paul, how Solomon starts that? Hear how Solomon starts the book of Proverbs. This is verse 1 of chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. See, right now, he doesn't start out at the beginning and say, so you will do what you're told to do. No, his goal is higher than that. His goal is more lofty. To discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. Isn't that what we want from our kids? And ultimately from ourselves? To live lives characterized by righteousness, justice, and equity? Right? To give prudence to the naive... To the youth, knowledge, and discretion, a wise man will hear and increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it's a bigger picture than just do as you're told. It's hear my heart, hear what I'm saying, and walk in that because, as he goes on to say, it will be better for you. It will be better better for you, right? Verse 2 expressed that. He says in verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. That word honor is so significant because honoring somebody is, you know, you can instruct somebody to, to pay respect and they do and you hear there's no respect in their voice whatsoever. This isn't that. This is Find that place in your heart. The word honor that's used here means to attribute value or recognize the value. And one of the things, especially in our culture, that's a real challenge is we do have that dynamic where the older parent, i.e. grandparent, comes in the house, is helping your children to understand, even though this old person acts really strange, to still not just act towards them with respect, 
and express value, but come to understand the value that they actually have. And that is an extraordinary moment when your very young child has an opportunity with your older parent that they begin to understand the value that that older parent has. I love it when we had those moments when we had parents, our parents in our house, and our children could interact with them in a way that they could actually could see that value. Well, sometimes as parents, our job is to help connect the dots. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Raising our children in such a way that they not only simply act with, res- with respect, but they actually attribute honor and recognize the value in a parent. And Paul says, this is the first pro- commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. And I think this is where this really diverges from a simple set of rules that you have to do. Because again, our mentality, Western mentality, given to legal interpretation of things, is we hear God saying, these are the rules you treat your parents with respect, I won't smack you. <laughs> Isn't that the perspective we bring? Again, our Western mentality, a byproduct of the, of the Roman Empire, we inherit so much of our understanding from that, that these are the rules, you obey them, you don't get hit. You disobey them. That's not what's happening here. That is not what's happening. Again, go back to the idea of the book of Proverbs. Wisdom, acting in such a way that things work well. It's not as though God is sitting, and even as adults, man, this was a hang-up for us, we have this mentality that God is in heaven waiting for us to make, make a mistake, in which case he does bad things to us, and if we do good things, then he says, good little boy or girl, and gives us goodies. That's our mentality. As opposed to saying, there are things you should do because life just works out better that way. How many of us had a sibling had a friend, or maybe you were the friend or sibling of whom it was said, they just had to learn things the hard way. Right? I won't ask which category we fell in, but I think all of us either had a sibling, had a friend, or were that person of whom it was said, they just had to learn things hard way. What are the things in that sentence? We use an expression like that without really thinking it through. When we use an expression like, well, they just had to learn things hard way. I had to learn things hard way. What we're recognizing is that there are certain lessons in life that are universals. Those are the things in that statement. And some people have to learn those lessons the hard way. And if you learn those lessons, it just works out better. That's what he's getting at. That when we teach our children to act in wisdom, hopefully based on the examples that we set and the advice and instruction we give them, things just tend to go better, right? It's an observation of reality. It's how life works out, okay? Now, there's a corollary to that in verse 4, and this is often the part that doesn't get the adequate attention, you know. It says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? How many households is the fear and discipline and instruction of the Lord like emblazoned, if not literally, figuratively on the walls of that house, right? You ask a parent, what do you, you ask so many believing parents, what do you want for your kids? I want them to grow up in a fear of the Lord, right? And that's an honest and valid goal, right? But how many houses have, do not frustrate your children, 
Do not give your children cause to be angry. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do anything that gets your kids upset. You know, they get upset, right? It's going to happen, right? What's he saying? Don't frustrate them. If our goal is to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, then our first goal, you know, first priority, is to give them a model to follow, live our lives in such a way that they can emulate us, give them valid instruction. The second priority is don't get in the way. So we should be asking ourselves as parents, is the model I'm giving my children, are the words I'm sharing with my children, or the instruction I'm giving my children, are they leading them in the direction I want them to go? Toward God. And then the second question is, am I helping that process, or is my behavior getting in the way? Those two questions are equal. That's the point Paul's making here. Those two questions. Am I setting a good example, giving a good instruction, leading in the right direction? And two, am I living my life in such a way that it doesn't make God's job harder? I don't know about you, but I, I spent a lot of time with that prayer on my lips growing up. God, I hope I'm not making your job harder. Based on my behavior, I don't want to make your job any harder than it already is. Yeah. So, we want to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and that involves a lot. Uh, it's pretty basic stuff. It has a lot to do with going back to love and respect. Going back to love and respect. We talked about that last week. We need to look at the whole picture together, right? Um, it has a lot of making sure my children know they are respected, they are valued, because it makes it so much easier for them to follow the instructions that I may give and to be deliberate in attributing value. One more comment on that and we'll move on. Um, something that happens in our culture, again, I think it's because of the legalistic mindset, is we define honoring someone as not deliberately dishonoring them. You know, as long as I don't act towards you with disrespect, that equals respect. And as long as I don't act towards you in a way that dishonors you, that equals honor. No, it doesn't. The act of attributing respect, showing respect, the act of attributing honor or value requires an action. It is, you have to do it. You must act in a way that attributes value, right? In the same way that, you know, the word, the word value, the word honor that's used here is the same word that's used price, for price, when you buy something in Greece, for example, where the word is used today. Um, you do have to pay for the product before you take it, right? You can't say, well, you know, I'm going to take it out of the store, but I'm not stealing because I wasn't, like, deliberately stealing. No, you didn't pay for it, right? You have to act. It's a lousy illustration, but it's the best I can come up with. Um, you have to actively pay for it before you take it. Anything less is thievery. I can tell by looks on faces I'm not cooperating, but I'm not going to beat that one to death. We'll go on. Okay, the second set of relationship that he talks about is the matter of slaves and masters. Verse 5, slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And this is one that really gets folks going because the suggestion is made the Bible affirms slavery. Does the Bible affirm that slavery is right? No. It never does. And you encounter people that say that, and I've talked to them, I'm, probably you have too. Does the Bible ever affirm slavery is right? No. But it does speak into a world where slavery was the norm. Slavery was the norm. It is a normative part of the human condition. 
The oldest references to slavery go back before any written records. The oldest clear references to slavery are found in the history of Crete, and it's found in the artwork there. They didn't even have a written alphabet yet. And yet slavery was already the norm. It's part of the fallen human heart. It's part of the fallen human condition. Archaeologists have looked across the spectrum, and the only cultures where they have never found any record of slavery are cultures that remain 100% nomadic, meaning there's no reason to have a slave. If you're completely nomadic, a slave is more trouble than they're worth because you've got to make sure they're coming with you and they don't run off. right? The only, wherever you see a society moving from nomadic existence to a civilized existence where they stay in one place, it doesn't take long, slavery crops up because it's beneficial. It's part of the human condition. So scripture doesn't affirm it, it simply recognizes it and it offers instruction for those who had to deal with it. It's a given, right? In every legal code of antiquity, from Humrabi on, you find references to it, right? We come to the first century, however, it is distinct. We come to the slavery in the Roman Empire. One of the things as, as Americans we have to do is separate slavery as we understand it today, looking back in our own country's history, looking back into the 19th century, the 18th century, the 17th that slavery is extremely distinct from what we read about in Scripture, and yet with a common element. There is a common element, and yet there is a distinction. We have to talk about both really, really quickly. Um, the common element is this, and this is the common element of all slavery, which is what makes it the evil that it is, and there's a reduction of a human being to less than humanity. When a human being is, is, is transferred from their status as a human being to a piece of property, that's simply evil. And that's the common denominator in all slavery. And that's the common denominator from the best example, as in Rome, where slaves often held high and exalted statuses. Most of the jobs were held, were held by slaves. I mean, can you imagine, if you would, a college professor, think of the college professor that influenced your life the most, the one that you had the most respect for, the one that you admired. In Rome, they would have been a slave. Think of, 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 of doctors, think of lawyers, think of teachers. Any profession in Rome, it was likely a slave. Romans didn't do that stuff. They sat around and I don't know what they did. They didn't work. They ran for political office. Yeah, but all of those positions were held by slaves. So it was, it was a much more, if we can use the word exalted, um, status than our American experience of slavery, and yet it had that common denominator. They were still less than human beings. They were tools being used to accomplish a task, and therein lies the evil. So we have this distinction and yet this commonality. It makes it a little bit difficult for us to understand. We have to have that in mind as we read what we're going through here. Um, he talks about, in verse 6, about slaves doing... Read it. Slaves serving their... Verse 5, I'm sorry. Verse slaves being obedient to those who were masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity. I'm just going to go ahead and read through it. I want you to notice the two things Paul is doing. Paul does two things in this passage. I'm going to try to just simplify this. Two things in this passage. One, he is telling a slave how to navigate 
a slave that's a Christian, that's a believer, how to navigate the reality of having their humanity denied to them according to the flesh. How to, how to, how to function in that environment in a way that honors God. And at the exact same time, Paul is eroding the very mindset that allows slavery to exist. He's doing two things in this passage. He's telling slaves how to function, and he's eroding the very assumptions under which slavery can operate. Listen carefully. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. Telling a slave how to function according to the flesh. He's affirming that slavery is, is, is something that is according to the fallen human nature, right? Verse 5, slaves be those who you beat according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. You're not following them, you're following Christ. You're living your life in such a way as to bring honor to the Savior and never through disobedience or rebellion or disrespect bringing discredit to the gospel. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The slave could have confidence their service wasn't to a human being, but to God. With good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men. That's how the slave can function. That's how the slave that has rediscovered their incredible value in the shed blood of Christ can even begin to function, knowing that their service wasn't to man, but to God. Knowing, that, verse 8, that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Verse 9, masters do the same thing to them, give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. What did he just do? He just completely eradicated any notion that one human being can be subjugated to a place of less value than another. Even as he is telling a slave, this is how you're going to function in this environment. This is how you're going to live your life in such a way that the gospel is not discredited by your behavior. At the exact same moment, he's making it untenable for a person to keep slaves. Because if a slave owner has the slightest understanding that the ground before the cross is absolutely level... And he will stand before a God who, show, who is no respecter of person. That word literally means God doesn't care for your face. God is not impressed by who you are. God is not impressed by your status or your wealth or the ethnicity of your last name. God does not care. We all stand equally. Suddenly, if you look at it in that perspective, who's in the worst position? The slave or the slave owner? When you realize that slavery is a completely temporal reality and that the day will come when both slave and slave owner will stand before an eternal judge who does not care what justification a slave owner had for owning a slave. The only thing that matters is that you took a human being and denied them their very humanity. In that moment, frankly, I'd much rather have been the slave than the slave owner. Because the slave, if he has faithfully followed the instructions of the text, has nothing to apologize for, nothing to repent of. Whereas the owner is guilty of a grievous sin. God established that truth in the Old Testament. And that's another one of those passages of Scripture that we struggle with. It goes clear back to the law where it made it very clear that Jews could only take slaves of non-Jews. 
Now, we see that, and we go, well, that's just like racist and bigoted. It's okay to have a slave if they're a Canaanite, but you can't have a slave if they're a Jew. Well, God was making a point clear. Understanding that between people who stand as equals, slavery has no justification. While you come to the New Testament, you find that Christ died for all. The ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level, and there is no justification slaving anyone. It's an inherent evil. But there's always a higher priority for us, and that is to live our lives in such a way that the gospel is glorified that the truth of the gospel is expressed through our lives. And that is the constant theme that runs through every element of this discussion between husbands and wives conducting themselves in such a way that the gospel is glorified in the immediate family. Children honoring their parents in such a way that somebody looking from the outside sees something that gives honor, first to parents and then ultimately to God, and then even masters and slaves. Every one of those relationships can be lived in a way, as such a way, as to bring glory to God. And that's the lesson for us. Because this applies just as readily in our employment situations. You know how many of us have had employers that were as bad as a slave owner? Kind of thought they were, in fact. Right? Every relationship we encounter the question we always have to ask ourselves is how do I make this relationship work in a way that glorifies Christ? And that's a challenge in any culture. That's a challenge in any home. That's a challenge in any relationship. Our highest priority is always living my life in this situation in such a way that glorifies Christ. Because when I stand in eternity, that's the only thing I'm going to have to answer for. Everything else, I, everything else I do in this life, it's gone. But when I stand before Christ in eternity, the question I will have to answer is how did I live my life in such a way that those who watched me, those who touched me, those who were influenced by my life were drawn to Christ? I hope I can give a positive answer. But all of us can. We live in, in a culture where I think we kind of feel like the rules are changing. We live in a culture where so many things are not the way. I couldn't help but notice we were praying for, for, the, for the, about the, about the Vietnam War. How many here weren't even born when that war ended? Most of you, know, most of you are not raising your hands. You're lying, right? <laughs> I think the majority of people in this room were not alive when the Vietnam War ended, right? That's a sea change culturally. Our country was a much different country. I'm, all I'm saying is things are changing. That's all I'm saying. Things are changing, and they're changing fast, and they're changing a lot. And a lot of us are going, I don't know what to do, because the rules are changing so fast. Well, Paul gives us a standard to follow. In each and every situation, simply ask ourselves the question, what behavior on my part in this situation ultimately brings glory to Christ? What behavior in this situation that I can, what can I do that would lead people to the Savior? Because everything else is secondary. Father, we, um, we come to a passage of Scripture that I know uh, people have, have struggled with. Because it sounds like the Bible saying something which, frankly, we don't like very much. But that's nothing new about that because we've got lots of, of issues, Lord. But, Father, I pray that as we process this material, and it takes a process, the whole issue of husbands and wives. I know that's a process for some. Uh, children, 
with parents, and that almost wasn't good, Lord. That's a process. Um, the whole slave and master thing, that one's a little foreign to us, Lord, but we really do have experiences like that. And we may even encounter people, Lord, that have experienced something like that, Lord, because of the fallenness of our world. And so, Father, I pray that as we go through these relationships and we're navigating these waters and the, navigate, and the, and the changes, Father, that are coming our way, Father, the simple truth that Paul was able to tap into, Lord, to do things in such a way that we give glory and honor to God, that our lives ultimately are pointing people at Jesus, and then all, all the details, Father, they, they kind of go to the wayside. Let that be our conduct, Father, this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.